This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today, you'll hear the second part of my fascinating conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz. She's the founder and CEO of Acumen, a nonprofit venture capital firm that promotes businesses in developing countries, focusing especially on women. And she has had a great amount of success in an area where there's been a lot of disappointment. How has she done it? We explored that in the first part of the conversation. Now in the second installment, Jacqueline explains that philosophy of patient capital, how she's learned to work with entrepreneurs around the world and make positive things happen, not doing the traditional venture capital way or the nonprofit way, but a way that works. And it's really brought about wonderful stories. And you're going to hear some of these great stories in the moments ahead. But now, what's ahead? Well, there is plenty coming up. You're going to hear more than you want, unless you're a great football fan, about the Super Bowl between the Chiefs and the 49ers, two great quarterbacks. And people are going to be more interested in that than the other story you're going to be hearing a lot about, because a week from Monday, we're going to have the Iowa caucuses. Who's going to emerge on top? Who's going to have to drop out? You're going to hear again more than you want on that. Talking about sports, though, while people will be focusing on the Super Bowl, a lot of fans are going to be focusing on something else. Just this past few days, the Hall of Fame announced two new inductees into the Hall of Fame, including the legendary Derek Jeter. Now, there are 398 writers who vote on this. Mariano Rivera, the great closer of the Yankees, was unanimously elected to the Hall of Fame, and everyone thought Jeter would be unanimously elected to the Hall of Fame. But he only got 397 out of 398 votes. And people are wondering, who is the sports writer who voted against the great Derek Jeter? The New York Post called the guy a jerk. I call him a knucklehead. I'm assuming it's a he, but who knows? But that is a mystery that fans are going to want to know the answer to. Inquiring minds desperately want to know who wouldn't want Derek Jeter in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, of course, there'll be talk about the State of the Union Address, which will come a week from Tuesday. What will Trump unveil in health care? What will he unveil in taxes? Because he knows he's got to have a second act for his second term. He's got to have people look to the future. So this will be as much of a campaign speech as a recounting of the State of the Union. And, of course, there'll be revelations on how the economy is doing. New residential sales will be coming out on Monday today. On Tuesday, we're going to get an advanced report on durable goods sales. Are people buying stuff still? We're also going to get what they call the Case-Shiller Indices. What are the prices of houses around the country? How are they holding up? In addition, we're going to have the survey on consumer confidence. Now, that doesn't always correlate with how the economy is going to do. But what is the mood of consumers? Is it still good? If it's still good, well, there's hope for the economy. And, of course, on Tuesday the 28th and on Wednesday the 29th, we have the Federal Open Market Committee meeting. And that is the Federal Reserve is going to get together. People used to be wondering what are they going to do in interest rates. Everyone knows the answer to that now, and that is nothing. Lest they get the wrath of the gods sitting in the White House descending upon them. But what people will be interested in is what is the Fed's outlook for the rest of the year? So it won't be what they do. It'll be their statement of what they think lies ahead. It'll be gobbledygook, but like the old criminologists in the days of old during the Cold War, you try to figure out what Moscow was doing by parsing words and who was in a picture and who wasn't. 
People will be doing the same with the Federal Reserve statement coming out probably on Wednesday. So a lot coming up. And everyone, uh, certainly my big interest is not the Iowa caucuses, but who was that knucklehead sports writer who could vote against the great Derek Jeter? And now, the second part of my interview with the legendary and great achiever, Jacqueline Novogratz. So you uh, come to uh, life crossroads, whatever you want to call it. As you said, poverty is too complex to be answered with one-size-fits-all approach. Needed philosophy based on human dignity. That you had to combine the ideas of philanthropy, combine the markets in a way that fit the needs of specific people. And you have a very important quote here. You say, dignity is so much more important to the human spirit than wealth. The reason I emphasize that is there's an historian, a noted one. We had her on a podcast several months ago called Deirdre McCloskey. And uh, she's written numerous books on development of Western markets, capitalism. And she said the essential difference was not resources, was not accumulation of capital. She shows throughout history there are other periods where this happened. She said the difference was the rights of the individual grew in Europe in a way that had never happened in other societies. And if you don't have that, those individual rights, that individual dignity, the rest is very ephemeral, can come and go. So you've hit on something very, very important there that uh, she did in her own way, you did through your own life experience. So your initial attempts at Rockefeller to persuade them that uh, a new paradigm was necessary meets with predictable resistance. But eventually, uh, Acumen Fund, as it was called then, get, get, gets off the, the ground. So walk us through how you made that happen and uh, the insights that you brought that made this different and is now, they call it impact investing, but is becoming more and more accepted instead of the failed practices of the past. Um, thanks, yeah. And it, I was incredibly lucky in that Rockefeller um, did end up um, being our major anchor funder to um, put the initial capital into Acumen along with Cisco Foundation and three Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. So from the get-go, we were using different kinds of, in, working with different kinds of institutions. At the heart of our um, thesis at that point was that we needed patient capital, that philanthropy is supposed to be so risk-oriented um, and should be because it is um, – <clears throat> capital where we've traditionally expected no returns, and yet it's too often where we see people take the least amount of risk. And that we would instead take that philanthropy and invest long-term, uh, 10 to 12 years, um, in intrepid entrepreneurs that were trying to build, mar to build solutions to poverty where both markets and government had failed the poor. Healthcare, education, agriculture, energy, housing. Um, we would not only leave our money with them, but we would accompany those entrepreneurs with the kind of management assistance and access to networks that would help them thrive. Any money that came back to Acumen, we would reinvest in innovation for the poor, and we would learn to measure what matters rather than just what we can count. Um, As you said, our donors would be called investors. They were. I don't think they understood just how patient we were going to ask them to be, but... Um, 
I'm so grateful for those early investors um, who took a bet on something that had really never been tried, given that it took us such a long time to actually prove that it could work. Now, we'll discuss some of the amazing successes you've had, but in terms of uh, patient capital, how do you avoid the temptation of these seemingly intrepid entrepreneurs, but human nature being human nature, to think, well, I've got a lot of years. I don't have the uh, push to make things happen in a way that you had when you went to Africa. How do you get the, the push, but also the realization some of these things are going to take time? Well, one of the things that has been um, most important for me to learn these last couple of decades with Acumen is that um, you can look at all the spreadsheets you want to look look at when you're making a d- decision to invest, but the single most important factor is character. And one of the things we look for now quite deliberately is not only their vision, but their self-knowledge. Most entrepreneurs don't have the capability themselves to build the kind of team that can get an innovation to scale. We look at their resiliency and their grit. We look at whether they can hear feedback and whether they're honest. And if you get those right, then you got a partner. Um, We also try to work with them so that in most cases we're their first investor, but we want to get them co-investment. And by now, you know, we have a record of bringing in six to eight dollars for every dollar that we invest. Um, But to do that requires that they start moving towards sustainability and um, and prove a track record. So it's holding that tension between urgency and patience um, that is a skill set we have to learn. And one of the radical things, <clears throat> just to emphasize it, is that you're a f- seeming philanthropy but willing to work with for-profit organizations, which was anathema to traditionalists. It was anathema. And, and even today, some people will say, well, I don't understand. I'm going to put money into you as philanthropy, and then you're going to put money into a for-profit, and someone's going to make money, but I don't get the money back. And, and I will now say, well, we're putting money in young people who are going to spend 10 to 20 years trying to build a company to serve people who make 2 or $3 a day. They're the poorest people in the world. God bless them if they make any money. We should be cheering a new kind of role model who will go out into the world and create change. And the truth is, to make these business works requires such razor-thin margins that this is not going to be giant wealth creators for the individual entrepreneurs. It actually speaks to a success that is driven not only by money, power, and fame, but by the amount of human capacity that we're releasing into the world. And I think that that is something that Acumen can really now proudly start to offer the world as a a new slate of entrepreneurs that are driven to solve our toughest problems, not because they just want to do good, but they want to be so of use to the world that they are driven um, to solve that problem. And they know the only way that they'll be able to do it is to use a mix of for-profit capital and the kind of institutional support that will help them um, achieve their goals. Especially as you point out services, people need to learn and you can provide that to them. Um, in terms of uh, patient capital, uh, people say, well, why does it have to be patient? And you've alluded to earlier, 
you're, you're developing customers. It's not like starting a business in the U.S. where you figure there's a potential market there. In essence, you have to create a market. You have to create a supply chain. You have to create distribution patterns. You put, it, your, it, you put your finger on it. We have to create a market. I didn't understand that when we were starting. That when you looked, when Sam Goldman and Ned Tozem came to us in 2007 with a $30 solar light, I thought this was, you know, we may as well try. It was such a great idea that you could replace kerosene. It would only cost people essentially what they paid over a three-month period for kerosene, and they'd have a um, a constantly self-reinforcing... Sustainable. Sustainable <laughs> supply of energy um, without understanding that there was no trust, there was no infrastructure, there was no financing. No poor person has three months of cash in their pocket, even if it's only $30. They pay 40 cents a day for kerosene. And if they don't have 40 cents in that day, they go without their heating source or their light source. And so with a light, where would you get a 40 cents a day payback mechanism? Um, we didn't know what to, to price this thing. We didn't know how to build the markets at the beginning. And so um, sometimes I laugh and I think, how patient does our capital have to be? <laughs> um, but it had to be patient because ultimately they learned how to price. They learned how to convince and build trust they learned how to fight the status quo, which were the kerosene mafias and in places like Nigeria, the diesel mafias that had no interest in being taken out by this and, new— and by the way, what you call the diesel mafias in Nigeria, they oppose electricity plants. Of course they do. Of course, there are 60 million diesel generators in Nigeria. A 200-watt solar system could take, that, uh, take a diesel generator out. Um, and so— the status quo exists for a reason. It works. For powerful people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, you uh, move ahead. But let's discuss some of the exciting things. One of them you discuss in the book, and you've done obviously much uh, since then, was a doctor. And I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because, I, Swami. Well, because I'll make a hash of it. But you found he was doing 80 eye surgeries a day versus six in the U.S., but good surgeries. And you were able to uh, provide something that uh, would help him even more. Walk us through that. Yeah, well, in this case, we learned more from Aravind, if I'm really honest, than they learned from us, I, I'm afraid. they. This man was so spiritually driven, and, and he matched himself with now one of my best, my, now one of my board members, um, Tulsi Ravila, um, who was a real businessman. And they built a pro-poor business that, not, that compromised neither on the dignity with which they would work with the poorest people nor on the financial discipline that would enable them, enable them to create financial sustainability. Um, as you said, they used a just-in-time approach to delivering cataract surgery, but then Dr. Venkataswamy, who must have been near 80 at the time, was really excited by telemedicine, which was fairly early, um, and we provided the financing for that experiment in telemedicine, not only to do grand rounds where Dr. V himself could teach um, med medical students across the country, but they could literally um, look at a farmer in a far-flung rural clinic and do an analysis deep into his eye and, if necessary, teach the presiding 
clinician how to operate on something very simple, or they could um, bring that person into the nearest hospital where they could operate all at distance. And the numbers that um, Arvind um, has achieved today are just mind-boggling, both with the telemedicine, where now they can actually do distance surgery um, 10 years, 15 years later, but they're also treating about 4 million people every year. So it's um, the largest um, eye, health, eye hospital in the world. Two-thirds of people who are served by them are served for free. Um, and they consistently do more than cover their costs. Even though and this is another lesson in venture capital, you may have a better mousetrap, but it doesn't mean it's going to uh, be a success was hearing aids. You came across an entrepreneur who could do a hearing aid that would cost thousands of dollars in the U.S., a fraction of that, and uh, it didn't work because a variety of reasons, starting with vanity. Walk us through that and what you learned from that. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, that was another—we thought this would be a blockbuster $30 hearing aid that was as—that tested it as well as the $3,000 cochlear implant. And um, you put your finger on it. Um, we're vain as, as human beings. It doesn't matter if we're rich or poor. We like beauty. We like to look beautiful when we can. And, um, people didn't want to be seen as needing a hearing aid. And at that point they were fairly large. Number two, um, there was no real distribution mechanism for this technology that was in place. That whole thing would have had to be built. Um, Again, gets to your point. You're building infrastructure. You're, you're doing everything. And this, the, the entrepreneurs that we've invested in haven't just built companies or even markets. They're, they're building nations. They're, they're fully now starting to create. And I can give some examples of that. But the third piece that we hadn't really understood is that as human beings, we make rational decisions based on um, what our investment, whether of time or money, is going to return to us including enjoyment if it's just a cigarette for the day, unfortunately. But the um, in the case of hearing aids, whether you can hear or not doesn't really impact your ability to thresh um, maize or wheat. And so farmers um, didn't see a real need, whereas with glasses, you literally reduced your um, your lifespan by going from sight to a lack of sight with cataract surgery, and you became a burden to your family. And so it was in everyone's interest to fix your eyesight. Whereas with hearing, you could sit in the corner, but you could still do your work. And we had to understand that as well. We're getting to some of these uh, nation builders who are doing it not by nation building, but doing uh, what you've been working with them on. Uh, I like chocolate. Talk about uh, Columbia chocolate, what, what, what you did in I like chocolate, too, <laughs> which makes these chocolate companies so dear to my heart. And thank you for asking about it, because um, with the Arruacos in, in Colombia, we're really starting to see a new generation of individuals who are changing rules of capitalism, um, keeping the tools in place. So the chocolate industry is a $100 billion industry that depends on the work of about 5 million smallholder farming families. 90% of whom make under $2 per day. Um, in West Africa, working under the most 
in human conditions in some cases. And so it's a it's an industry in real need of disruption. Um, in Colombia, you've got some of the finest cacao, cocoa, um, in the world. And there's a particular kind up in the Santa Marta um, mountains in the Sierra Nevada, um, which is where the Arhuaco Indians um, have lived for generations. And it's a white cacao. Um, when um, Carlos, the entrepreneur, decided to build a chocolate company, um, he knew that business could be used as a tool for peace building and so specifically understood that the cacao is mostly grown in post-conflict areas, including up here in the mountains. Um, Post-conflict, uh, Colombia had a terrible— 50 years of civil, civil war. war. Terrible. And, which, uh, given that, almost plus, became a narco state. Yeah. And given the terrain of Colombia, your post-conflict areas, which helped the, um, the narcos, um, are very mountainous with jungles and rivers and so cut off from the parts of Colombia that are extremely cosmopolitan and wealthy. And so you've got unskilled populations cut off from major markets, um, no trust, and now you've got to go build a business that will help move toward peace. And so um, Cacao de Colombia began a relationship that, with the Arhuaco uh, elders, the, the mamos, who have a whole cosmology that sees themselves as the elder brothers, because they understand our connection to the universe, to the earth. And we, the rapacious capitalists, are the younger brothers. And and so it was really taking the time to understand their cosmology, recognizing what they, um, what they valued, and nonetheless building a partnership where they would source the cacao from the mountains for this beautiful company called Cacao de Colombia. And when I had the privilege of meeting the one of the mamos, Mamo uh, Camilo, he explained to me that this was the first group that he would allow the Arhuacos to partner with because he trusted there was an appreciation of their value system. And but make no mistake, he listening, said. Listening, patience. Listening, patience, respect. He said, but make no mistakes. The minute you throw our community out of sustainability, we will end this partnership. And after... 35 years of doing this work, it was one of the first times that the uh, one the person who ostensibly had less power had understood that he could own his power and take it and recognize that we needed him as much as he needed us. And um, that has been an extraordinary partnership. And um, the Arhuaco Chocolates have won twice gold gold medals as the best small batch chocolate in the world. Um, so it's been a really fun. The, the company also understands the production costs to the 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 Arhuacos and other people across the country that are sourcing um, and builds a system of payment based on that rather than simply looking at global commodities prices, remembering that this is for a premium chocolate that will be sold ultimately for $10, $15 a bar. Amazing. Uh, going to India, you've had an amazing success with an ambulance company. As you've pointed out, until your fund came along, ambulances in India, 90% were just used like hearses, just taking the dead to uh, the funeral home. 
And uh, this company has absolutely transformed that. Walk, walk us through that. Thank you. Yes. Um, I actually write about this in my new book the, um, because I have this memory of um, announcing at Aspen Ideas Fest that we had just invested in this new company that had nine ambulances and that was going to take on the multi-billion dollar corrupt, bloated ambulance industry in India. And a very prestigious Indian businessman said, Jacqueline, I'm sorry, this is what's wrong with social enterprise. You know, people who are too smart doing things that are too small and fit, wanting to feel good about themselves. And do you know how many people live in Mumbai? And I said, well, I do. 17 million at the time, 22 million today. Um, but nothing was working, so why not try? And um, that also had its share of uh, challenges, which required patient capital. Again, I think we always... We, I often underestimated what it meant to take on the status quo, um, what it meant to take on the corruption, um, teach the, on, the drivers of those ambulances not to take bribes because people got to hospital by paying a bribe and um, really having to disrupt every stakeholder of the system. Um, at the beginning, it was a pure pri private model, and so the idea taken from Arvind was that 20% of people would ride for free or pay whatever they could afford. Um, and my own frustration was that we weren't growing fast enough. We weren't reaching enough of the poor, that we weren't there to create a public sector, um, a private version of the public sector good for the middle class. And, um, and then the terrorist attacks of 2010 happened. Um, and because we had an efficient system that could actually show up, that ambulance company took about more than 120 people out of the burning buildings of the terrorist attack in Bombay that where the Taj and the big hotels mm -hmm. um, were put under siege. Um, and that really opened up a whole new conversation that government bureaucrats saw that this was an effective, efficient company and the company always understood that for it to scale across India required a public-private partnership. And um, in many ways, that was the beginning for Zikitsa, which is the name of this company. Um, we also had to learn what it meant to fight more institutionalized corruption, that often when it comes to these big government contracts, that you have to pay a bureaucrat before they will pay you for the month what they owe you. Um, and this company refused to do it. And one of my favorite stories was when the government official had gotten so frustrated with the company for not playing ball that, that he called and, and really extorted the CEO, uh, forgetting that an ambulance company records every phone call. So now we had the guy on record. And, um, and then the next move was to... Um, accused the company of being corrupt publicly in the paper. So we look at these great successes and see them as overnight and, and easy, but they take an incredible amount of blood, sweat, and tears. Today, Zakitza, um, interesting, that number 4 million, take about 4 million people to hospital. They've got 13,000 employees, 3,500 ambulances, and really have set the standards and many of the policies for emergency health services in India today. So just quickly hit on how uh, that has changed government, even though you have this institutionalized corruption. It did change some of the behavior of government. Yeah, and it actually really taught me, Steve, that uh, it's a misnomer to say that government is corrupt. 
there are institutionalized pieces of systems that uh, make it easy for the the, the, the the ugly sides of ourselves to operate. Um, but I have met some of the most high-integrity individuals in government as well. And um, when you find those, the right bureaucrats to partner, you can really create examples of the way we solve these problems. And so in ERISA state, which so is one of... it's not either or. It's not either or. And... And we're at such a moment of polarizing. The left is good, the right is bad, vice versa, government's good, private sector. We've we've got to reimagine these systems. And so Arisa State, which is the third poorest state, had some extraordinary young bureaucrats that were determined to get rid of corruption and do things differently. And they have partnered with um, Zakitsa in their state and to get to show you the difference in human lives. Ten years ago, when there was a big cyclone in Orissa, 10,000 people were killed. A few years ago, um, another cyclone of, of similar magnitude hit, and I think they lost one person. Um, they had an emergency fleet that worked in full with full integration um, of government. So it, what this company did was give bureaucrats who wanted to do something good, a vehicle in which they could say, this works. Exactly. Fantastic. Uh, one thing, uh, one, one other success, you alluded to it earlier, Solar Lantern. Uh, walk us through that. So um, we started with these two guys, Sam Goldman and Ned um, Tozum, 2007, as I said. We wandered through many fields together. Um, we ultimately put about $5 million of our patient capital, philanthropic backed, investing in them over the course of a decade and watched them um, build the different pieces of infrastructure for the solar um, off-grid industry. Meanwhile, solar as a large industry also started to change massively from the time they invested when solar was $4 a watt. It, we saw it go to sub a dollar a watt and it's continuing to go much cheaper, batteries became more efficient. The world started to see solar as a potential pathway. Um, in 2011, they had probably reached 3 million people. Um, so this is four years in. When um, mobile banking came to Kenya, Kenya has been way ahead of the game with cell phones, first of all, leapfrogging traditional phone lines. How did it happen in Kenya that most people don't realize they are, as you say, the most advanced country in the world in terms of a... Mobile banking. Yeah. Um, Kenya is an incredibly entrepreneurial company, country and um, good government policy that was pro-business and brought in the cell phone companies. And when the poor see something that will change their lives, as I was saying, they will find ways to get it. And... Um, Today, almost everyone in Kenya owns a cell phone. Seventy percent of the population owns smartphones. Um, 2011, Vodafone worked with Safaricom, which was Vodafone's subsidiary in Kenya, and they created something called M-Pesa. M-Pesa was your mobile money. And so suddenly, you didn't need to worry about cash. You didn't need to have a bank account. We always talk about the unbanked. That's where I started my life. Um, now you had a telephone. And so today, literally, you'll see farmers paying very, very small amounts of money on their phone 
across the country. And so Kenya really led the, wor- the world in mobile banking. Um, in 2011, Delight partnered with a, a company called Mcopa to bring mobile banking into cell phone, to solar systems. So now you didn't just have a $30 light. You could actually electrify your home, put a 10 to 50-watt solar panel on your roof. That would connect three lights, a radio, and a cell phone charger so that you could literally go from going to bed soon after the sun went down to having a party, charging your cell phone, earning income, um, and you could pay in the same way you used to pay for kerosene, 40 cents a day on your phone. If at the end of the month you had not made your payment, the solar company could call you and remind you and decide whether they're going to give you a grace of five days. And if you did that too many times, they could shut down your unit. And so you have off-the-chart repayment rates, and the solar revolution began. And today, D-Light has brought light and electricity to more than 90 million people. Um, Acumen has become the largest off-grid solar investor for the poor in the world. We've got about 30 companies. We've also moved from patient capital that we use to help build the market to a $70 million impact fund, for-profit returns fund, to actually now grow these companies called Kawasaki. Um, Because now we need to take the market to scale and show government that if we want to reach the other 600 million Africans that have no electricity, and we must, then we've got to get serious about using different kinds of capital um, uh, to enable people to get electricity themselves in an off-grid solar way. And that will also help avert long-term climate crisis. Fantastic. So one of your amazing successes, especially involved two people from Chicago, is chickens in a country that didn't have them before. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Yeah, you know, I think another, you talk about young people and and sacrifice. I think there's also, at this time in history, we we go to the polarities. We go to, um, it's either business or it's government, et cetera. And um, uh, I have a great story of these two young Americans, uh, Dave Ellis and Joe Shields from Chicago, um, who ended up in Ethiopia. And um, they were really looking for a company. Uh, Dave had been working in Uganda in a nonprofit and was frustrated with the lack of efficiencies there. And so um, they saw this opportunity for $100,000. They could get access to one of government's largest chicken farms. Um, The problem was there were no live chickens in the chicken farm. um, That just mismanagement um, meant that this was a real broken industry altogether. At that time, the average Ethiopian ate, I believe, under a half kilo of chicken per year. And the state of Tigray, where they operated, a five million person state, had a 51% malnutrition rate. And so, despite the fact that um, Dave had never held a live chicken in his life, um, these intrepid entrepreneurs took on the challenge and, uh, and just started, let the work teach them. And it's a long story where they made lots of mistakes, including. Uh, assuming that um, farmers would know what to do with a day-old chick. And, of course, 
it's hard to raise a day-old chick to 45 days where the chicken's actually laying eggs. And a poor farmer who has a million other things to do can't spend the time raising that. So they built a business model where they could incubate eggs, get them to the point where they had one-day-old chicks, sell them to agents in batches of 1,000. Those agents would raise the chicks till they were 45 days old, earn significant income, and then sell them in batches of two or three to farmers, who at that point, now that I have a 45-day chicken, I don't have to do anything. They'll eat anything. And so then I can take the eggs and either feed them to my children or sell them in the market, usually a combination of both. Meanwhile, they had to have the humility to understand that while they may have had assumptions about government in Ethiopia, rural government workers were more trusted than the private sector. And so they learned what could government do well and what could they not do so well. Um, And they partnered in really spectacular ways. Today, that company... Um, sells to about 20 million farmers. They inject about $250 million into the Ethiopian economy every year. And um, government has credited this operation with reducing childhood malnutrition in Tigray by 11% to um, to 39%. And and we have learned um, that we have to get more creative about the way we solve problems because these are some of the greatest job opportunities and job creators that we can have. Those agents, many of of them went from about $300 per year to anywhere from $1,000 to $10,000 per year. Um, And the farmers we're seeing move from about $350 a year to $500 a year. So significant changes. Um, And many college graduates are now signing up to be uh, agents that are raising chickens. Um, and that if we use our moral imagination and really get focused on solving problems, the numbers of jobs that will grow into careers, I believe is unlimited because we got a lot of problems. Um, and within it is enormous opportunity. So by building a business, they help build a nation and uh, do it in a way which is going to last. It's going to last. It's going to be good for everyone. And the traditional way of looking at a problem would have been, how do we get food in there to stop the malnutrition? Now you've got one where the malnutrition is stopped and people are prospering. That's right. In closing, you say we have yet to imagine new institutions, the one that will, ones that will work. Tell us where you think we are today. Things can go either way. Where, where, where do we go from here? You, you, you've shown one way. You've pointed out in your annual report. You've literally impacted hundreds of millions of people. Um, you've shown a way that works. Where, where, where do you see this going? Uh, we're interconnected as never before, and yet we have these forces saying, no, we shouldn't be interconnected. Yeah, I, I, I think we're at the most perilous time in our lifetime, and yet um, also the time of the greatest possibility. Um, and that's why I believe when I talk about a moral revolution, I'm not saying we're going to have some authority from on high that gives us the rules. No Um, Ten Commandments. (laughs) (laughs) But that, that we, all of us need to be part of the change. All of us need to recognize the kind of, um, a world where every human being is included in opportunity, where every human being has dignity. And 
I actually feel incredibly hopeful because I see in every hamlet of the world and I get to interact with the wealthiest and the poorest individuals on this planet who want to be part of the change. And and so by moral, you know, you could call it spiritual, you could call it, you know, you put the word in, but it, it's essentially a framework that starts with this idea of human dignity that we all need and deserve a chance to make our own choices and have our own opportunities and that we need the earth to last for many, many generations so that not just this generation, but every generation of human beings will have access to that dignity. Once you have that and you put the poor and the vulnerable first and you make that part of success, then we can solve these problems. I have seen it now time and time again where intractable write-off problems are being solved by creative, pragmatic idealists that break all the rules and in so doing create a new set of rules, a new business model and become new role models for a world that needs all of us. And um, I think we're just starting, but we've got to get through this rocky transition as corporations start to bring a greater emphasis on stakeholders rather than shareholders as we start to look more at long-term thinking rather than short-term thinking, as we build new tools to measure what matters rather than just what we can count, and as we see how much we need each other and that we aren't just connected to each other, we are at a cellular level part of each other. And, um, and I think there's no more joyful, meaningful work to do on this earth than this kind of work. And finally, for young people, you've said nothing happens in life without cost, that uh, you're going to make sacrifices along the way. And uh, if you understand that, then you can move forward and know that if you're doing what you think is right, the fact that you didn't do everything doesn't really matter at the end of the day. No, I find it so funny um, when I'm in conversations with not just young people, but they'll you know, this is such a sacrifice. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Everything has a cost and nobody gets everything. And yet the perfect always exists within the imperfect if we're ready to open ourselves to it. And um, it's often by taking the more difficult road that we find what we're really looking for and we find most importantly a path to self-discovery, a path to come home to ourselves. And it's in committing to things that are bigger than ourselves that we ultimately find our greatest freedom. Jacqueline, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thank you. It's such a privilege. I hope you enjoyed and indeed was inspired by my conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz, truly a unique an extraordinary individual doing really good things. And now, my reads for the week. The first one. If you think the world is going crazy, well, I'll give you an example here. It's a story called It's Not the Store's Fault. It's written by John Hirschauer, H-I-R-S-C-H-A-U-E-R, at nationalreview.com. The story is about a town in the state of Washington called Lakewood, Lakewood has decided to punish supermarkets. What is the crime of supermarkets? 
the fact that people steal their carts, the shopping carts, especially the homeless and drug addicts. Well, instead of punishing those who steal the carts, Lakewood has decided to punish the people whose carts are being stolen. Now imagine you're robbed and you're accused of being a criminal because you were robbed. Well, hopefully Lakewood is not an example of the rest of the world. But if you don't like the world, this is an example of how the world is going to the dogs. Now, something that'll bend your mind. This article is called, How Far Is It to the Edge of the Universe? This really will get your mind reeling. What is after the universe? If it expands, what does it expand into? What's outside of it? 7-Eleven, what? Well, this article explores that. A lot of new things being found out. It's a mind bender. It's written by Ethan Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, and you can find it on Forbes.com. Now, getting back to Earth, a couple of articles for the week. One is called Get Ready for the Post-Keynesian Age. It's written by Nathan Lewis. You can find it on Forbes.com. Nathan makes the point that the kind of economic policies pursued since the 1930s, the idea that the government can guide the economy through spending, through manipulating interest rates and the like, just isn't working. Look at the bad recovery since 2008. Very disappointing. And he makes the point one way or the other, the whole Keynesian ideology is soon going to go to the ash heap of history. What will precipitate this heave-ho of Keynesianism? Well, it could be another crisis like 2008, Hopefully, just be governments realizing this stuff isn't working. Let's go to something that's worked in the past. A final one is called Propeller of Growth. Risk is at the heart of any healthy economy. This one is written by Allison Schrager. You can find it at cityjournal.org. That's city-journal.org. She talks about, yes, we want to minimize risk. That's why we have laws about speed limits and the like, and the limiting risk. But sometimes we go too far trying to eliminate risk in the economy. The economy only gets ahead if people are taking risks, not knowing what's going to happen down the road. You can't predict the future. Good article to read in an age where sometimes we think we can take risk away from everything we do. Parents, now were they called helicopter parents, sometimes stand back. It's better that way. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.